Revolver, August 5th, 1966. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Episode 11, Revolver. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Galker, along with the Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. We are at the halfway point of this podcast. It has been such fun reviewing the albums and seeing the progression of sounds in the last two years. It's pretty crazy. The Beatles just keep it coming as they drop Revolver, one of the best recordings of all time. It was released in America just six weeks after Yesterday and Today was released. Before we get into the show, we do have some housekeeping notes. Just remember that we are a DIY podcast. That means you may hear some pops and hisses. We are doing this in our living rooms. It is not studio quality. We apologize for any kind of noises that you may hear. And I have a podcast. It's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music podcast. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues. It's not really about Baltimore, but we want you to subscribe and the link is in the show notes we want you to be a part of that be more music scene the beatles guru brooke halpin he's all-knowing when it comes to beatles and he sweats that beetle dna follow him on his facebook page come together with the beatles and brooke halpin the link is also in the show notes and we're asking you to get on our facebook page it's the beatles come to america and rank the u.s albums from best to worst and trust me it's harder than you think and we hope you subscribe, participate, enjoy. Just remember, we love the Beatles, so love us in the comments. Believe it or not, we're not making a penny of this podcast. We hope that you enjoy our other projects, all listed in the show notes. It's The Beatles Come to America, Episode 11, The Beatles, Revolver. Now, who could this be calling me on a Sunday? Yes. Someone who wants to talk about Revolver. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I'm in the mood to do that. Oh, great, Tom. It's always wonderful to be with you. It is. Uh, today is a very special day. Why is it special? Oh, my God. Well, we're going to be talking about the Revolver album by the Beatles that was released in August 1966. Oh, boy, I can't wait to get into this one. I have to admit right up front that this is my number one album. It is uh, a love fest through the years. I've loved individual songs more than others, but as a whole, I always come back to it as a as a piece of work. It's my favorite. Well, it just happens to be mine as well, Tom. Let's get into it. The album cover, of course, was created by the good buddy Klaus Vormann, who they met when they used to perform in Hamburg, you know, back in 1960, 61, 62. And then Klaus, of course, went on to be a bass player with John's plastic on a band and Klaus also played bass with George. I don't know if he ever played bass with Paul, which is interesting. Of course, Paul's a bass player. There you go. <laughs> but anyhow, the cover is, is brilliant. It's something we've been seeing before, and it's Black India Inc., they call it. And right away, it's something different. And it's a collage. You know, you've got the large faces of John Paul, George, Ringo, and then you have smaller versions of them from when they were younger. For instance, you'll see, you know, little pictures of George taken off the back of the Rubber Soul album and John from the back of the Rubber Soul album. It's a brilliant collage of many, many Beatles on top of 
Beatles. So it's Beatles superimposed with Beatles. The back cover I love just as well, and I'll tell you why. Because when you look at the back cover, Tom, they're all smiling, especially George and Ringo, and they're grinning. But John looks pretty happy, too. And Paul, soon, you know, he looks all right. But compared to the last album cover that we talked about, you know, that stupid yesterday <laughs> album cover, this was a huge change. And they're all wearing glasses. John's wearing what they was called granny glasses back then, which were very popular. Not only was he wearing them, but you know, his band, the Birds, used to wear the granny glasses as well. And then Ringo, George, and Paul are wearing the sunglasses. John's shirt is it's like a Paisley shirt, which was a popular style of clothing, you know, back in 66. You know, so some could say that, you know, this back cover was kind of like a psychedelic cover. I wouldn't go that far. But the point is, is that they were really happy. And I think that the happiness that is portrayed on their faces on the back cover is what we hear, you know, when we get into the individual tracks for the most part, musically. Right away, it's the same photographer who took the back photo on Revolver as Rock Whitaker. And he was the one who did the photos of the Busher cover and the trunk cover. So, you know, Robert Whitaker is uh, one of those photographers who uh, has been with the Beatles during this time period quite a bit. So another photo credit to Robert Whitaker for the back cover. One thing about that back album cover photo is that they look like adults. They don't look like kids anymore. And they look like they're in the studio and they were working. It just seems like a... A lot of jazz album covers has like them working in the studio kind of look. And it looks like that they're in the studio working and um, what they're cooking up is completely different and original. So it doesn't look like it's a pinup thing like for kids to, you know, swoon over the pictures. It's about them working in the studio and, you know, and this is what we're getting. We're getting revolved. When it came out, you know, and I looked at the photo, I just thought that the Beatles looked Super cool, extremely cool looking, you know, hip, fab, gear, whatever adjective you want to use. And, you know, they're not holding any instruments or anything. And it's kind of backlit in a way because you've got that light above John's head. You have some other lights off to the right that you don't see, which you're backlighting. Ringo, George, and Paul, because there was a light in the front as well to get the images lit up too. But it's a beauty, yeah. Yeah, Revolver. The name of the album, Tom, you know how they came up with that. Oh, tell me. Well, originally they were going to call it Abracadabra, which is a pretty damn good name. But no, no, they came up with Revolver. And Revolver, of course, is like, well, Revolver's a gun, right? And knowing John and the other three, I don't think that they would be wanting to promote or advocate guns on this album or anywhere for that matter. So I think it was simply something simple as, well, you take out the album and you put it on your turntable and the album becomes what? A revolver because it's revolving around the turntable. Very clever. Very simple, but very clever. What a great name for an album at that time. Just some notes. I know you're going to talk about your life experience with this album, like when you remembered as a child, but Lot of lot of praise, a lot of information. This is the final project before their full retirement. So uh, they stopped doing live performances. It's a focus on some LSD, Eastern philosophy, the avant-garde, 
And it's the first time that they were doing automatic double tracking, and, and they brought the the mixer into the studio and the mixing board instead of kind of in a control room so they could do that automatically. It was a very, very popular album, but it declined in sales in America because of the We're More Popular Than Jesus quote that came out with John Lennon beforehand. So there was a little backlash, but it didn't really last because in 1999, the album made it to the Grammy Hall of Fame. The album won Best Album Cover in 1967, so good job, Klaus. It ranked number one in the 1998 and the 2000 Colin Hawkins All-Time Top 100 Albums of All Time. Rolling Stone ranked it number three for the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. It went double platinum. It's the first album that they spent 220 hours working on. Uh, this is the first album where uh, George Martin became a collaborator more than a facilitator. There was uses of the Indian tambora and tabla, um, the clavichord, the, the vibraphone, and uh, we have a horn section and sound effects and overdubbing and a lot of good stuff going on. I just wanted to get all that in because it's Marvel. The album has been uh, revered for years and, and looked at as a piece of work. Yeah, well, you say that they had retired at this point. Well, actually, they released the album and then they went on their tour of North America. So they were still performing when this album came out. Yeah. Faulty information. They didn't want to play any of this stuff because they felt it was too complicated live, though. That's true. They're, the only thing that they could have played off this album, they could have played Taxman. They could have played Here, There, and Everywhere. But they chose not to. And those are probably the two from the whole list that would lend themselves to a live performance. But they didn't. You know, they chose not to. And, of course, Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine were the two songs that were on this album, and they didn't play them at all, you know, during their tour in 66. But I'll tell you that when this album came out, and I remember buying it, and looking at the cover and back cover and going home and put this, put this on my hi-fi, because that's all I had was a hi-fi. And I started listening to this album, and I thought, now mind you, prior to this was Yesterday and Today, which pretty much, you know, straight ahead, great Beatles songs, although, you know, they were getting advanced with the backward guitar work in Mamona Sleeping. But aside from that song... You know, the other songs on Yesterday and Today were fantastic. I love the songs on that album. Not so pleased with the album itself. But the point is, is that I'm listening to this coming off of Yesterday and Today, and then, of course, prior to that was Rubber Soul. And, you know, you hear this really cool one, two, three, four kind of thing. And that was super cool. And then all of a sudden, you know, the band jumps, and then it gets into Eleanor Rigby, which... It was a mind blower because, you know, there's no guitars and bass and drums. You know, it's a double string quartet. And then we go into Love You Too, which is an Indian classical Indian music piece entirely. It has nothing to do with, with really the, the Beatles. It's George Harrison. And then you get into, you know, Here, There, and Everywhere, which is, you know, a beautiful ballad. But the point is, is that this album, when I heard it for the first time, it was mind-blowing. And of all the Beatle LPs, up to this point, this was the best-sounding LP in terms of the way it was recorded, the sound itself. 
the sound of the guitars, the way the guitars were produced, the way the vocals were done. And I think also that this album, in terms of its sound, is just as relevant today, and even some of the lyrics are just as relevant today, as they were when it was released in 66. I had a rock and roll band at the time, and listening to this album, I thought, well, gee whiz, you know, I guess it's not too much we can play off this album. So it was a turning point, and it was also, as you had said, a turning point for Beatles, because they were getting tired of touring anyway, and they were putting all their energy into the recording studio, and this obviously is a beginning of their focus entirely on recording and not having to go out and perform any of the songs. Yes, they didn't have to go out and perform live with the songs that they were recording, so their focus was really like they had a freedom now in the recording studio to do things that they didn't have to perform live anywhere. Let's get into each track. The first one is Taxman, we talked about. Just some notes on it that this is like kind of a scathing kind of um, song about being taxed over too much in, in, in uh, Europe. They were getting taxed at like 95%. So it was something crazy like that. It's more or less a protest song. Harold Wilson's labor government and Edward Heath, the conservative leader of the opposition, both were mentioned in this songs kind of like as a finger up to them. The, this is kind of like a punk rock uh, 1970s sound. The guitar and bass, and I know you're going to talk about that. Uh, the jam at least stole this rift right off of it. I'm going to let you talk about this song. First of all, the album starts off with a George song. This is the first album that starts off with the song that George wrote. Now granted, Beatles' second album starts off with George singing. He's singing rule over Beethoven, but obviously he didn't write that. That was written by Chuck Berry. But this is the first time that George has the opening track that he wrote on this album. So straight away, that's something different. This is a flat out protest song. He's protesting about the very, very high tax rate that he and, and his other Beatles and a lot of his friends were getting buried by, you know, from the, as you mentioned, the government in England at the time, a 95% tax rate is crazy high. And what's fascinating about this is that even though George wrote it, he doesn't play the lead guitar solo. <laughs> That's Paul playing that lead guitar, and it's an amazing lead guitar solo. It's, my, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> And not only is Paul's lead guitar playing great during the solo and also as the song fades out, Paul's bass line is, is phenomenal. And, the, of course, George does play a second lead guitar, but he's not soloing. What's interesting, too, is that he starts off the song with Let Me Tell You How It Will Be. And when you go further down the album, he has a song called I Want to Tell You. So, <laughs> George, you know, there's a connection lyrically, obviously, between let me tell you and I want to tell you. He has things that he wants to say, evidently. And the first one is Taxman. Ringo's drumming might be 
some of his best drumming ever with the Beatles. And John's contribution is uh, he's playing rhythm guitar, but yeah, you hear it, and he does some backing vocals. But this is really a George Harrison, Paul McCartney track, as far as I'm concerned. And it's a brilliant way to start the album. Our next song is Eleanor Rigby, and it's um, a narrative about the perils of loneliness. And uh, Lennon Harrison does harmonies, but it's uh, a string octet, and it's inspired by the movie Psycho. And when I did that research, I went, hmm, Psycho, I can kind of get that. Great covers by Aretha Franklin, Stanley Jordan, Bobby Gentry, and Richie Havens through the years. It's a highly covered record. I'm Eleanor Rigby. Lives in a dream, waits at the window. Wearing a case that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for all the lonely people? What do well, this is a Paul song, as you'd mentioned, and it's very unlike Paul lyrically. You know, Paul's this happy-go-lucky guy, and here he is, you know, writing this song about loneliness, and it's a very, very sad song. So we go from George's protest song, which, by the way, Paul's lead guitar solo is rather Indian-influenced. I uh, might want to mention that, which, of course, put a big smile on George's face. But with Eleanor Rigby, and there's no Beatles that play on it, as you had said. And yes, the strings are played in a style called staccato, which means that it's like the bow is actually hitting the strings. It's, so the strings almost sound percussive, which is, is interesting. And of course, that's George Martin who did all that. Wanting to portray, I believe, uh, sort of like the pain in the lyrics. I mean, these are very painful, very sad lyrics. I mean, everybody's sad, but nobody's happy in this song. She's wearing a face that she keeps in the jar by the door. That's flat out poetry. And what a great lyric. What does it mean? She's wearing a face that she keeps in the jar by the door. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, again, back then when the album came out, it was just the sound uh, of the songs on the album. No one really, none of my friends, and, and myself included, we weren't sitting around analyzing the lyrics of these songs. You know, we were just blown away by the way the songs sounded. And it's also interesting that Eleanor Rigby would be paired uh, with Yellow Submarine as a double A-side, a double-sided single, double A-side, they call it. Because you, you couldn't get any more extreme. It's the antithesis. Yellow Submarine is the antithesis of Eleanor Rigby. Because Yellow Submarine is an irresistible fun. You know, they're just having a blast. So you go from the sadness and the loneliness of Rigby, and you turn the single over, and you've got Ringo and the lads having a total hoot, laughing it up, and we'll get into that. Yeah, Rigby, of course, is a masterpiece. And to this day, it continues to be a masterpiece. Thank you. 
Our next song is Love You Too, a really intense world song. Uh, I don't think any Beatle fan who you know bought the lunchboxes, the mop top hair, would think a Beatles would come out with a song like this. What's your thought on this song? I have a lot to say about this song. George has the opening track, and we're on to the third song, and it's another George Harrison original. Wow. Because up to this point, George only had one song on U.S. releases, only one, and in some cases he had zero. He would sing a song, maybe John or Paul wrote, or he would do cover songs. He would sing a song by Carl Perkins, for example, or Chuck Berry. But, oh, wow, so George has got two songs already. You only have to track three. Now, the title in and of itself is bizarre. Love You Too, but the two is spelled T-O. If it was spelled T-O-O, then that would mean, oh, I love you also. But no, it's only one O. So what the hell is that? It's not a misprint. What it is, in my opinion, is that you know that this album and some of the work on Yesterday and Today, they're getting into the whole backwards thing. They loved it. They loved the whole backward recording technique. Well, if you take the title, Love to You, you know, I want to make love to you, that kind of thing. Well, instead of love to you, George did a backward thing and made it love you too. That's the only explanation, because grammatically it just doesn't make any sense with one L. And I don't know anyone who's talked about that, so I wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. There's no John on this track, which is interesting. Because John, I guess, I don't know, you know how much of a of the Indian music fan he was, really. I don't think he really was a big Indian music fan. He was into, of course, you know, he got into the Indian philosophy because of George, only to find out that, you know, John would write off the Maharishi, you know, as someone who used the Beatles. So it doesn't surprise me. So there's no John on this song at all. It's just George, and it's Indian musicians. There's no bass. Uh, there are guitars, and there's no drums. The drum is being played by some musicians from the Asian Music Circle, which was uh, an organization where Indian musicians in London uh, were members of. And that's where George was able to bring the, the Indian musicians in to Abbey Road. And the tabla player, he's the drummer. That's the Indian drums, small drums called the tabla. Anil Bhagwat is playing the tabla, and he is the only credited outside musician on this album, and the first one to be credited on an album in the Beatles catalog thus far, even though we had John Scott playing the alto and tenor flute on You've Got the Hind Your Love Away. So it's George playing the sitar, acoustic guitar, rhythm guitar, and he plays an amazing fuzz tone lead guitar on the chorus, which sounds like a bloody buzzsaw. It's just an incredible sound. The, uh, the lyrics are are kind of, they're not very happy. 
you know, again, this is another protest song. You know, there's people standing ground who'll screw you in the ground. My Lord, you know, that's not a very, uh, <laughs> a very happy lyric. So with the lyrics on Love You Too, George was really speaking to the, and it's about the anti-establishment is what I'm saying. And so it was very appropriate and popular at that time for all the Beatles fans. It really made a lot of sense. And George absolutely nailed it lyrically. The song's a total surprise. And then you put that buzzsaw that you're talking about that, like that's unheard of and it's wild. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very progressive for anything that was going on. Right now, we have three tracks into it, and everything's completely different, and everything's completely amazing. And we go right into another amazing song, which is Here, There, and Everywhere, where this is a Paul song, and it's inspired by... He listened to Pet Sounds before it came out, and uh, God Only Knows. So this is kind of his yeah. spin on that. God only knows what I'd be without you. It's one of those songs that millions of people have copied over. Uh, Art Garfunkel said this is his favorite song of all time. Covers from Count Basie, Claudine Langette, Andy Williams, Jose Feliciano. They all had minor hits on it, you know, during that time period, right as soon as the song got released. Very, very light drumming. 
and then George plays an exquisite lead guitar on this track. The background vocals are some of the best background vocals ever recorded by the Beatles. Yeah, just just exquisite background vocals. Uh, and of course, that's John and that's George together, and they did a phenomenal job with, with the, the way they sing the background vocals. The thing that George does on the guitar is like, it's almost like a, a classical riff. It, it's what they call counterpoint. It's a contrapuntal line that George plays. If she's beside me, I know I need never also chromatic it goes step by step it's it's brilliant i don't know anybody who was doing that and i don't know if george martin was the one who had anything to do with that or not but boy what a job that mr harrison did on this guitar work his choice of notes were just absolutely brilliant and so as far as i'm concerned you know this song to me is uh, on a scale of one to ten it's an eleven <laughs> leads us to a children's song that spawned a whole industry. There's a movie, there's cartoon figures, there's a number one single. What's good about this song, in my opinion, I thought about it, right now the Beatles fans who started out in 64 are growing older. And when you talk about Yellow Submarine, you're reaching down to like five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, people who are drawn to that song that may not even know who the Beatles were. And that draws them right into the collection of the Beatles. So what they were able to do is capture a new generation right where they're at the peak of their abilities. And it's it's genius in a sense because you just gained yourself like a whole new like generation of fans. This song was written by John and Paul and Donovan had his hands in it. Uh, the brass band section where the band began to play was the Sousa Marching Band. It's just a file. It was in their, the EMI library that they grabbed. Lennon does the old vaudevillian stick on it. They wanted it to be goofy and fun. It was a great vehicle for Ringo. I don't think anyone, when they wrote the song, that they thought this would have legs like it does. This is considered super, super classic Beatles song. When you listen to it, even to this present day, it's irresistible fun. Absolutely. I mean, they're having so much fun on the recording of this. You can hear it. It's just oozing tracks. They're hysterical. It's a total blast. And it was Paul's idea. You know, Paul was the one who came up for the song. He wanted to write a children's song, and he thought it would be good for Ringo to sing it. John, I believe, participated with some of the lyrics. And then, of course, you mentioned Donovan Leach, the famous Donovan who did... Mellow Yellow and Sunshine Superman. He came up with the sky of blue and the sea of green. So he gets a credit for that lyric. When you look at just what we've covered thus far, it's like, what the hell's going on? Because we went from a protest song to a sad song about Rigby, Eleanor Rigby, to an Indian song. Uh, and then we went to a beautiful ballad. And now we're going into a children's song. It's like, what the hell's going on with this album in terms of continuity? Because when you go back to Rubber Soul, Rubber Soul, the songs have an overall continuity. This album, with the variety that we've heard thus far, is the precursor to the White Album. You think about that, because that's how diverse the songs are. Of course, 
the White Album has the most diversity of any Beatle recording. But so, and we're only up to five, and here's now we have a children's song. The thing that's really fun about it is not only, you know, John and Paul, you know, yakking away, and actually John and Paul are talking through tin cans. Also, you've got, as you mentioned, the brass band. And the brass band is actually, it's a similar to the sound of coming up, you know, with Sergeant Pepper. So it's interesting to see how this is sort of the beginning of using a brass band on a Beatles song. And the other thing that is fascinating to me are the background vocals. Who's singing on the chorus? The list of singers on the chorus, it's like a who's who here. I mean, it's, you got Mal Evans, you know, the roadie, and not only is he singing, but he's playing the bass drum toward the end of the song. George Martin is actually singing on this track. It might be the only track in the entire catalog where George Martin and Jeff Emmerich singing. Neil Aspinall singing. Patty Boyd, she's, she's sung on, she will be singing on some other songs as well. And Marianne Faithful, who was, of course, a successful recording artist in her own right. Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. And here's the real kicker right here. Brian Epstein, their manager. Brian, I didn't even know he could sing a note. He's singing on the chorus as well. That is just, to me, is, is so extraordinary. It was, it was a party. It was a party atmosphere. And the party atmosphere comes through. And everybody loves this song. And that's why it was such a big hit. Okay, we are at She Said, She Said. Harrison helped Lennon out on this song, kind of bash it apart. It's three separate fragments of song ideas that he had. I don't know how he fixed it. She said... There's many things that are interesting about this Lennon penned song. The title, straight away. You would think it would just be, she said. No. The title is, she said, she said. So straight away, it's like, okay, what's going on with that? That's very unusual. In August 65, when the Beatles were out in Beverly Hills having a pool party. And yeah, you know, the birds were there, and, and Ringo and George and John were tripping on LSD, and Peter Fonda showed up. He was tripping on LSD. Then he went up to John and whispered in his ear, I know what it's like to be dead. Yeah, and John's tripping on acid, and that's the last thing, <laughs> thing you want to hear. You know, you want to have a good time. John thought it was just a total drag, and he told Peter to basically, you know, screw off and bugger off and leave me alone. But, of course, that was the seed for John to come up with this amazing song. It is an amazing song. The sound of the guitars on this song are incredible. <laughs> I don't know what the hell they were doing. And, you know, they were experimenting with, they were still using boxes. I know that Fox, they were coming up with new amplifiers regularly for the Beatles. New amps, not so much the speaker cabinets, but the innards of the amplifiers themselves. Different effects, different tones, and different settings. And I think that, that the Vox amps come through loud and clear, certainly on this song. And I have to say that Ringo's drumming 
is phenomenal. Uh, I mentioned before how Ringo's drumming on this record, I think, is the best drumming he's, he ever did in his entire life. But you listen to the drums on She Said. She Said, he is absolutely incredible. This is a trio. You know, there's no, there's no Paulie. You know, Paul's gone. You know, they had a fight. And Paul stormed off. So, but Paul's nowhere. This, he doesn't, you know, there's nothing. There's no contribution from Paul on She Said, She Said, which is amazing when you listen to it. You would think, God, that must be him playing the bass. But no, it's George playing a six-string bass. And, of course, George is playing the lead guitar as well and singing harmony with John because, you know, Paul was gone. The John has got the rhythm guitar going, which sounds incredible, and, and then he, he does some overdubbing with the Hammond organ. But one of the things that makes this a very strange album, as you were alluding to, is that there's different sections of the song, and there's different tempos in the song. The tempo changes from a straight 4-4. Four, four. One, two, three, four, bum, bum, da, 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 bum, bum. It's all 4-4 four, four time. Da, 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 de, da, 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 okay, but then when you get into the bridge, it goes into a waltz. I said, no, 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 you're wrong when I was a boy. Everything was right. Which is, again, very unexpected, and it's not triplets like they did in We Can Work It Out. It actually goes into three, four times. That's the part, you know, where he's going, no, 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 you're wrong. When I was a four, two, three, everything was a one, two, three, everything was a one, two, three, and then boom, back into four, four time. Seamless. You wouldn't know that there was a change in the time signature unless somebody like me could tell you that there was. And it was seamless. And part of the reason why it's seamless is because of Ringo's drumming. That's one reason why you can't even hear, barely hear the difference in the time change. Brilliant. It's absolutely genius. And then the end of the song, it goes into double time. It goes into twice as fast. I don't know what it's like. Which they did, by the way, that double time rhythm, they did that at the end of Ticket to Ride. So it's not nothing new, but it does work perfectly on the song. I think that this is one of John's absolute best songs he ever wrote. I'll go so far as saying that. And I think it might be underrated. We're over on side two with Good Day Sunshine. It's a Paul song. Piano solo has a ragtime style of... Um... Uh, Scott Joplin, and there was great uh, covers on this right away uh, with Lulu and Gloria Learning and the, the Arbors.
turn the record over, and now we hear this boom, 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 boom. And then these vocals, what's amazing about the vocals is the chorus, Good Day Sunshine, is in 7-4 time. You know, 7-4 time is a time signature that was used by Indian musicians and was used by some jazz musicians. No one used 7-4 in 1966. So the 7-4 is really a bar of two and a bar of five. Good day is two beats, and then sunshine is five beats. So you got good, two, one, two, three, four, five. Good day, sun, two, three, four, five. Good day. Uh, so this was total innovation. The innovation continues. Just so, I keep saying mind-blowing, but ear-opening, I guess, would be another way of saying it. Mind expanding is another way of saying it. We're hearing things that we never heard before. Seven, four, time? What the hell is that? And the influence with, by the Love and Spoonful is daydream. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy. And this is a minimal production. You know, there's no guitars to speak of, really, on Good Day Sunshine. Supposedly, John Lennon plays some guitar, but I don't hear it. I don't know why that's the case. You know, maybe he didn't want to play this, you know, because there seemed to be, you know, as we're going through this, you can hear that John is not playing guitar or keyboards on a number of these songs on Revolver, which I don't understand. I don't understand that. So Paul, you know, he's playing the piano, of course, plays a great piano and bass. And Mr. Harrison is not playing anything. He's just clapping his hands. So there's no guitars on this song, Tom, which is really bizarre considering, you know, how guitar-centric the Beatles were up until this point. And actually coming off of, she said, she said at the end of side one, which is very guitar-dominated, to go to this song, which is just piano, bass, and drums. That's all it is. There's some hand claps, okay. And then there's an overdub, as you mentioned, that George Martin plays the piano solo. It's a great track. It's innovative. It's an irresistible song as well. And I think it's a great way to start off side two. And uh, the next song is For No One, another song for Jane Asher. Thank God for Jane Asher. She's provided us with a lot of source material for a lot of good songs for Paul. Uh, here he's playing the bass, piano, the clavichord. There's a movie called Darling uh, from 1965. It's a John Schlesinger film. Basically had that as an influence for this song. And then millions of people did covers for this because it's really dramatic. And Cecilia Black had a hit off of it. Liza Minnelli had a hit. Uh, the Letterman recorded it, but there's hundreds of people that recorded this song. The day breaks, your mind aches. He finds that all her words of kindness linger on. This is a, another completely different new song for the Beatles. 
We've never heard anything like this before. New, 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 new. For no one. This is another sad song that Paul wrote on the album. This is about Jane. He wants the love to continue. But he says, when he looks in her eyes, you know, basically that the love is dead. That's a very heavy lyric for Paul McCartney in 1966. He knows that it's basically finished, but he thinks that she still needs him, you know, which is really kind of a complete twist on these lyrics. Uh, and also, which is very, very important, is that the ending is very unresolved musically. It ends on what they call a five chord, which is usually the chord that you hear before it resolves to the tonic or the root chord. So it leaves you in suspense, in other words, which is perfect because you don't really know what's going on, what's going to happen with this relationship. And that was a brilliant way to end the song. Boy, if that was Paul's idea, my God, that's genius. And I don't know if it was Paul or George Martin's, but brother, that is just incredible to end the song suspended like that. No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years Yeah, you're so far away from rock and roll. My God, this is a classical or Baroque-sounding song, which, again, on a new Beatle album, talk about variety and eclecticism of material. Wow. At the next song, it's I Want to Tell You. It's another George song, and this has... a an amazing sense of dissonance to it. I love this. I think it's awesome. I really like John and Paul doing the background vocals with uh, Paul hitting the high notes up there. Like he's uh, tackling the high notes. Kind of changes the whole sound of the song. I love the piano like dissonance. Like the din and din and din and din. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's another example of, of a really cool Harrison song, the production value of this song just escalates this song into something that some of his solo work didn't, but that's my thought. What's your thought on this song? Well, there's a number of things that we need to address. Number one, wait a minute. Did you say that this is another George Harrison song on a Beatle album? Am I hearing things correctly, Tom? Is this the third song that George has? What's going on here? Well, I said earlier, if he was lucky, he would have one on U.S. albums. Now he has three. So it goes from one or zero to three. This is a huge breakthrough for George as a writer. Are you kidding me? That has to be mentioned straight off. So I believe that these lyrics were a result of George tripping. And he was overwhelmed with all these thoughts, but he couldn't, couldn't sort them out, you know, to actually get them down and express them properly. He wanted to. He wants to tell you but he can't, which is really a, a yin-yang. You know, it's a black and white. It's the opposite going on. The opposite's going here. And uh, once again, we've got John and no guitar on the George song. Now, this is not because Paul McCartney is being the musical director on the George Harrison song. I don't know why. Again, John could have played a beautiful guitar track with George on it. No, he does do some harmony, and he plays the tambourine, and they're all doing the hand claps, so, you know, so that's nothing new. So, you know, back to that same point about John not participating with his guitars or keyboards. The other thing is, as you'd mentioned, at the end of the song, that Paul's vocals, that, yeah, he does a high vocal, and what it's like, it's like Indian scat singing. I've got time. 
That also has a um, a fade in intro. Yeah. So they they tried that again. It's great effect. Great song. God's Kitchen in My Light is a wild song. It's a Motown influence song. After they saw Stevie Wonder at the Scotch St James nightclub. Yeah, uh, famous uh, club in London. Yeah. yeah they they used uh, Georgie Fame's The Blue Flames as the uh, horns on it. Paul saying it's an ode to pot. It should have been famous immediately. They should have released it as a single. They released it in 1975 on the rock and roll album. The song's not rock and roll. It's an R&B song. It hit the top 10. And then Earth, Wind & Fire turned around and released it from the um, Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band movie soundtrack. And it hit again in the top 10 just three years later in 1978. Got a bitch in my life, in my life. So the song has legs. The song is a classic in any way, completely different than anything they've done up to this point. And they've never really duplicated this sound again, I think. Am I wrong by saying that this should have been a single? And isn't this like a a music explosion? Like, you've never heard anything like this from the Beatles ever. And even though it would be like a tribute to the Motown sound, it doesn't sound like Motown. It's a funk song. It's a... It's a R&B song, but uh, it's their interpretation of what Motown is. It's great, and it just blows me away. And it's a clean sound. The recording is awesome, and the horns are awesome. It's a brilliant song. It's in my top ten of their songs of all time. Well, when I heard "Got to Get You Into My Life," a number of things happened. But I said, "Oh, obviously, Paul's talking about a girl. Maybe it's Jane. Maybe it's not Jane." And then the other thing is, is that. What the hell's going on with these brass instruments? As you'd said, that this was, you know, something quite new and quite different. McCartney's vocal is phenomenal. It's almost kind of like a little Richard. Paul, John, George, and Ringo, you know, are white guys from Northern England. They could be influenced by Stevie Wonder. They could be influenced by the Motown sound, the Temptations, and everything else. They're still white guys. So... That's why you say they were influenced by it, and they're using the brass instruments, the trumpets, and the saxophones. But even though Paul's trying to sing like a black guy, it's not possible. And that goes back to Plastic Soul, which we talked about on the previous show, and which turned into Rubber Soul. So it's very interesting you know, that you uh, had mentioned that. I just wanted to pick up on that. No, John, 
I'm about to get you into my life. It says here that he plays rhythm guitar. I don't hear it. I know that Harrison's lead guitar is phenomenal on this track. It's almost as if everyone, well, let's just say Paul, George, and Ringo, I think musically that they were at the top of their game on this album. Absolutely. John, not so much, which is really kind of strange. I don't know why he wasn't more out there as a musician keeping up with McCartney's musical prowess, which is that of, of a musical genius. They were competitive in a healthy way. I would think that John would have said, oh, yeah, you, you think you played a good league guitar solo. Well, listen to this, Paulie, you know, but something like that. You know, the friendly competition that would go on between them, it didn't happen. And that's a disappointment because as great as this album is, just imagine if John had participated more on the tracks. It's just a thought. But getting back to this song, as you said, years later, I mean, I didn't know. I, well, it's about a girl. you got to get you into my life. I was alone. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find there. And then we find out that it's about Paul having to have pot every day. It's a disappointment, to be honest with you. I'm no prude. Don't get me wrong. But to think that if you're singing about having to have marijuana every day, it's really a letdown. <laughs> when we heard the anthology version of Got to Get You In My Life, it was yeah. completely different, and John was yeah. going there, you know, strong. Paul's vision, he went right to George Martin and said, this is what I want, because the evolution of that song completely changed. I enjoyed hearing it on the anthology, but boy, is it completely different to what the, the final product was. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. And we're up to the final song on this album, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. I know that there's a, a cool version and Junior Parker and Phil Collins. Turn off your man, relax, and float downstream. Tomorrow Never Knows is a, a story in itself, and uh, take it away. Uh, okay, so here I was saying, gee, I wish there was more John participation on this album. Whoa! He heard me. <laughs> and what a way to end this album. John ends, coincidentally, he ends side one, right, which she said, she said, and then he ends the entire record with Tomorrow Never Knows. The title is extremely profound. You don't hear the title in any of the lyrics, which is interesting. The sound of the song is unparalleled. It was unparalleled. It was unheard of to do something like this in 66. No one going forward from today until the end of time will be able to do what they did. This is an electronic piece of music that combines Indian music with electronic music with Ringo's amazing thundering drum pattern.
again, I cannot stress how phenomenal Ringo's drumming is on this entire record. The lyrics, John was reading, it was Timothy Leary book based on the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. So, you know, John was reading it and he was taking LSD and he comes up with this these lyrics and this idea for the song. The song is in one, it's on one note, one key, which is C, which is the drone. So again, the Indian influence. You've got George droning on the Indian tambura on the C. Paul is doubling that same drone on the bass. For Paul McCartney not to move around on the neck of the bass, it's highly unusual. But he knew that in keeping with the Indian element of the song, that that's what he had to do. There is backward lead guitar solo in this song, played by McCartney. So you got Paul playing the backward lead guitar solo. You've got John, he does play the Hammond organ and he plays the Mellotron. No guitar. And then George is playing sitar, and I mentioned the tambora. It says here lead guitar, but I, I've been told, and I believe, listening to it, if you listen to the lead solo that Paul plays on Taxman, it's the same sound. It's the same tone setting. It's the same style of guitar playing. So I say that's Mr. McCarty playing the lead guitar solo. Then there's something called tape loops. Now, this, Paul had a lot to do with this, which is interesting, because you would think that this would be John's idea. But Paul was very much into the avant-garde and the avant-garde scene that was going on in London, because Paul was living in London. John was out on the outskirts, you know, down south. And Paul was the one who was also listening to Stockhouse and, and Berio and all these other advanced composers of quote-unquote serious classical composers. And they were listening to Pierre Henri. And these were composers who were recording what's called music concrete. So it was Paul's idea to come up with the tape loops. And they all came up with tape loops, including Ringo, which is a first. You know, I wouldn't think of Ringo getting involved, you know, with electronic music necessarily, you know, given his taste in music. But that's how they were all working very tightly and as a four-piece ensemble on John's masterpiece. The song, as I said, happens to be uh, one of my favorites, and I know that John wanted it to sound like a, a thousand chanting monks, Tibetan monks, you know, like on top of the Himalayan mountains or something. You don't get that effect, because if that was the case, you know, there would have been a chorus of voices. You don't have that effect. But he did want to sound like he was singing like uh, the Dalai Lama. I don't think he, he's singing like the Dalai Lama. But they did do things. I know that Jeff Emmerich tried to do something with his voice, so they took up the microphone and they ran John's voice through some of the verses through the Leslie Speaker cabinet to give it this, you know, spacey, spaced out, more advanced, something different vocal. And I think that satisfied John to a point. But John never really got what he wanted with his song, believe it or not, which is what I have read about Mr. John Lennon saying a number of times. This song will go down in history as the most unusual, most advanced recording that the Beatles ever did, certainly to date. 
And even, I think, even beyond, even when you get into this psychedelic period, you get into Strawberry Fields Forever and some of the songs uh, from 1967. This is just a mind blower. So advanced. It doesn't sound like anything else. The working title for this song, by the way, was Mark One, and the other title was The Void. We have to mention, we have to take a look at Mark One, because Mark One is a chapter in the Bible. And there's been some talk, discussions about, now why would John call this Mark 1? And I've heard the story, supposedly. And it has to do with, you know, his take on religion, but at the same time, he believed that Catholicism was over. So I'm sure that that's one reason why he didn't continue to use the title Mark 1, and he settled on Tomorrow Never Knows. And the fact of the matter is, is that John knew, as well as you and I know, Tomorrow Never Knows to this very day, and that's something that can be said until the end of time, because no one really knows what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen in the next hour. So it's a total masterpiece, and to end the album with Tomorrow Never Knows is the best way to end this album. I also wanted to mention about Tomorrow Never Knows that this is one of the first songs where the lyrics don't rhyme. There's no rhyme pattern at all to the lyrics, and it doesn't matter. No one ever said, hey, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait, John. That last line doesn't rhyme with the next line or the third line. So again, very, very progressive for 1966 and even for today. This Mark One, I'm glad that they didn't call it that because, again, it was that time period where he said uh, that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. Exactly. So you did the Mark One. That's just a, more of a dig in. And uh, the revolver blew up all over the world except for America because of the, the Beatle burnings. It did well. I mean, it's a it's a double platinum album. It was a dip from uh, Rubber Soul. It didn't do as well. But it stayed at number one for six weeks. So it was yesterday and today was five weeks. And then Revolver bumped it for, and had six weeks. So the lasting effect is 50 years later, it's the, in my opinion and your opinion, it's the best Beatle album. So that uh, has a lot to say. So, as a whole, I, I never heard another album. I cannot compare this to another album at all. And I think it's it's um, it's pop perfection. I just wanted to address the Mark One again because Mark One in the Bible actually talks about John the Baptist, and of course, you know, we know what happened with John the Baptist. Very very sad ending to his life. You know, he was beheaded. So that's bizarre in and of itself. Because knowing what happened to John, you know, 14 years later, very, very strange that he would even mention it as a working title. Good God, that is something. Let's just take a look at each track, please. Talk about eclecticism. This, as I said, no doubt, in my opinion, is the most eclectic album to date. The songs are very different. You've got Love You Too. You've got Yellow Submarine, you've got Got to Get You Into My Life, you've got She Said, She Said, You've Got Tomorrow Never Knows. These are all very, very different songs, and yet the sequencing, I must admit, is brilliant, the way it's put together. And coming off of the two previous albums, this was a huge signal that things were changing in the Beatle camp. Whenever they were in the recording studio, it was like, oh boy, what are they going to do next? So this is a prelude to the eclecticism, which occurs big time. 
on the White Album. Obviously, we know what happens between this and the White Album, and we'll talk about Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour as we continue with your show, as we talk about the Beatles coming to America for the first time and, and the albums that go along with that. There's one other thing is that there's a single that could have, both of those songs could have uh, made it on this album, which is Paperback Writer, which never got released on an album. And the B-side was Rain. And uh, not to, to uh, tell anyone, but I, I think Rain is my favorite song of the Beatles catalog uh, just because of the backward masking and that every everyone has a part. The drumming is great. The bass playing, uh, guitar playing is it's just perfect song. But either, uh, those two songs could have easily fit onto Revolver. It would have matched, I guess, the time period and the creativity of what they were going through. It's okay that they weren't because the album was just jam-packed with good songs anyways, but it's just uh, to be noted that this is the time period. This is a, a double A side that didn't really work. I think uh, Paperback Rider hit number one and Rain was in the top 20. Yeah, Paperback Rider was a number one. I want to mention, as I was talking earlier about how I wish there was more John going on in this record, when you look at the UK release, there's a lot more John on the record. Because that on the UK release, which we're talking about I'm Only Sleeping, we're talking about Dr. Robert, those two songs were held back. They were not included on this because Capitol had already released them on the previous album on Yesterday and Today. And, so, and, and Your Bird Can Sing, another John song. And Your Bird Can Sing is the other one. Thank you. So that's one reason why... There's not as much John on the U.S. Revolver because they released those three songs on the previous album, which really, again, in terms of the balance, you don't have as nearly as much John on the U.S. version. You take those three songs off, and it's mostly McCartney and Harrison. I mean, that's it. You know, John only has two songs on the U.S. version, if I'm correct. He only has She Said, She Said, and Tomorrow Never Knows, which is mind-boggling for John Lennon. That's correct, isn't it? John only has two songs on Revolver. Can you believe that? It's at that point where when we got the UK pressing, it became a part of our, our lifestyle. I wasn't prepared for it. Uh, Revolver is such an album, a very personal album to me. I love this album. The fact that I, then I was listening to the UK version, which is the original version they wanted us to hear, and I was, it, it tripped me up for a really long time. I, I wasn't prepared because I, I knew these songs in order, uh, the, U, the U.S. version, and uh, it had to be taken back. But, yeah, it, um, three, three John songs got ripped apart and went right over to Yesterday and Today. I mean, for, for God's sake, John must have been really angry about that. He's the leader, original leader, leader of the Beatles, you know, which was his band to begin with, going back to the early days of the Quarrymen. And here's this incredible album, and he knew what this was a this was, album was going to be a, a huge game changer. And for him to have two songs on this album, I'm surprised he didn't really do something about that on the U.S. version. Uh, really, come to think of it, John, uh, excuse me, John, hello, John, is that you, John? <laughs> Tom, really, that's really quite startling. And it all stopped. So we'll hear this on Sgt. Pepper as uh, um, the cutting and pasting of Capitol Records comes to an end, more or less. We have some trauma with Yellow Submarine soundtrack that I will cry about. 
But more or less, the whole stealing is kind of gone, and we go right into Sergeant Pepper. And uh, that's correct. Yeah, that, that's an epic and a half uh, to talk about. Also, so it's going to be exciting to talk about that album also with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I may have to get out my my day glow Sergeant Pepper uniform for that interview. <laughs> yeah, I wish you would. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all righty well thank you very much uh the beetle guru brooke halpin it's the the beetles come to america we just completed revolver and we are giving it a thumbs up no reason to rank anything it's number one on both of our lists why wasn't got to get you into my life released as a single where what's the, the hold up that song smells like a hit like where does the beetle world say uh-huh. oh let, let's move to the next one yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a very good question because in terms of their single releases, as you'd mentioned, you know, they did Rain Paperback Rider and then they did Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine in that order. So the summer of 66, the airwaves were dominated by Yellow Submarine everywhere and also Eleanor Rigby. And then they ended their tour and then they went dark. There were no releases. There were no performances. Nobody knew what they were doing. Everybody went off on their own direction. George went to India. John went to Spain to be an actor in How I Won the War. Paul McCartney was composing a soundtrack to The Family Way. And Ringo was staying at home. So then we don't hear anything. And all the rumors began. Oh, the Beatles are finished. Oh, no more. There's no more. They, they broke up. They must have broken up. Because we were used to hearing, getting singles in 64 and 65. We were spoiled. And now we don't hear anything. So that's why the rumors started. We didn't hear anything until February of 67, when Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane came out. And in theory, that's really not a long time in our world now. I mean, it's nothing. But uh, in Beatle world, where they're you know pumping out one song after another, that's a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, like, what, you know, eight months. So that's why all the rumors started. People thought, that's it, they're done. And that's also when, you know, people came up with the conspiracy theory back in in 69. And the reason why there was nothing happening was because McCartney had died in a car crash. And all this stuff, you know, that was going on back then. But we'll talk about that some other time. Yep, let's do it. Okay, Tom. Well, that was fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Tom, thanks so much. I really enjoyed having these wonderful shows with you. Thanks again, and I look forward to moving on to the next one. All right. Okay, Tom. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. The next episode, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now enjoy an original Brooke Hopping composition, Down the Drain. Rain is acid on my skin. Melting me till I turn into Puddles thick with black dirt flowing Dirty water In the gutter
episode.